The race to 5G is on, and the battle for talent is getting fierce. Welcome to 5G Talent Talk with Carrie Charles, a podcast dedicated to helping you face the future workforce head on. Navigate this challenging talent landscape with innovative strategies to attract, retain, and engage people in this new world of work. Only here on 5G Talent Talk with Carrie Charles, CEO of Broadstaff Talent Solutions. Welcome to 5G Talent Talk. I'm Carrie Charles, your host, and I am so excited to have with me today Dan Hayes. Dan is a principal with PwC and leads the firm's enterprise strategy consulting practice for the technology, media, and telecommunications sector. Dan, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much, Carrie. Really excited to be here. Yeah, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got into this role or got into the seat that you're in today and also how you developed your expertise in the telecom sector. Yeah, well, it feels like it's been a long and winding road, but I'll try and keep it short. You know, I'm a self-proclaimed recovering engineer. Uh, I did my uh, college studies at Georgia Tech. And while I was there, I was part of a co-op program and worked in the tech industry for a computer company and decided that I really loved it, but really especially loved the business side of the tech industry. So uh, after I graduated and went to work uh, in the semiconductor side of computing, I actually left to go get an MBA. And while I was doing that, I was sort of exploring what I would do in the next phase of my life and wound up really deciding to experiment with management consulting. And so I took a role with a management consulting firm that specialized in working with very technically oriented industries and loved the work, loved the people. So I've effectively been working with the same group of people for the past 25 years. And 12 years ago, we became part of PwC and we're now part of PwC's strategy consulting uh, arm. You know, along the way, my tech background sort of morphed into the telecom world. And I was very fortunate. I got exposed to some of the very early days of smartphones and wireless data while I was working in the semiconductor industry. And I decided that that was a great growth opportunity from a career perspective. And so I started focusing on that when I got into consulting and really have never looked back. So over the years, I've had the great pleasure of not only working on the technology side, but also on the telecom services side and in both wireless and wireline and satellite. So been a great ride. So can you go a little deeper into your role at PwC and also the services that your team provides? Sure. So at PwC, I lead our enterprise strategy consulting team. And what that means in simple language is, We work with companies to help them identify opportunities and execute on opportunities for growth to grow their businesses, or we help them as well with restructuring their costs so that they can free up money in order to support growth. Um, We call that fit for growth. And then we also work in some other areas, including one that's really exciting these days, which we call regulatory and policy strategy. You know, never a dull moment with regulators in the tech and telecom world. And we're finding that increasingly 
creating value for companies in this space requires you to engage with and understand and respond appropriately to the legislative and regulatory environment around the world. So we're doing a lot of work in that space as well. But really, it's about helping companies with their strategies and helping them to grow and be profitable you know, now and in the future. So I hope you don't mind. We're going to jump around a bit because I really would love your perspective on a lot of different subjects. <laughs> the, sure. uh, the first one being the subsidy for broadband deployment, the bead funding, et cetera. What are the latest updates in bridging the digital divide? Well, this is a hot topic in the telecom world in the United States in particular. And I think that we are still in the early days of this latest wave of subsidy funding for telcos. And it's interesting, if you look back even 15 years ago, post the 2008 recession, when we had all of these recovery programs that were going on as part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, you could argue that many of them ultimately failed to achieve the opportunities that they had realized. A lot of them focused on mid-market fiber deployment, uh, middle-mile fiber deployment, and they never really expanded access in the ways that were hoped. But with this latest round, what we're seeing is a lot more focus on the last mile and on bringing broadband in the post-pandemic era to more Americans, to more homes, to more small businesses in unserved and underserved areas of the United States. So where we are today is some of the states have started to make awards. Um, we've seen the first wave of them trickling out over the past couple of months. And there's a whole long list of them queued up behind that. But what's interesting this time is how those awards are being put forward and the types of companies that are receiving them. So in our view, we see that these awards are much more targeted at last mile. They tend to be heavily emphasizing fiber to the home, fiber to the premises type of deployments and not focusing on some of the, you know, the more exotic, perhaps, uh, technologies that are out there. We can debate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but satellite and even fixed wireless seem to be getting much less focused these days. And we're also now seeing this start to have some impacts on the market. So, for example, we're hearing lots of reports from telcos that we work with that it's getting harder and harder for them to secure fiber crews to go and do trenching and boring and go and do pole work to deploy fiber because the skilled resources that are available for that are limited. And so, you know, law of supply and demand we're seeing prices starting to go up for that. So it's actually a great opportunity for people looking to enter the workforce and get into that space, which I think is, of course, part of the goal of the government in providing these subsidies. It's not just about the broadband. It's also about the jobs that are created. Yes, absolutely. And I live that every single day. So I want to talk about another hot topic, which is CBRS. Where does CBRS stand today? And also, how can companies take advantage of this new paradigm? Yeah, so CBRS is another great topic that really lives at this intersection of you know, regulation and business. Right? So for those that aren't familiar with CBRS, it's really a set of unlicensed and or partially licensed spectrum that the U.S. government freed up as a little bit of an experiment in order to enable spectrum sharing between the U.S. military and commercial users 
CBRS now is, you know, several years into its evolution. Um, it's out there. It's in commercial usage. There are hundreds of thousands of endpoints that have been activated. And I think by some accounts, it's been successful in that the spectrum sharing technology has proven that it works. Um, devices have become available. Network infrastructure has become available that's compatible with the band. And so that's been you know, a great success. At the same time, there are many people that would argue that CBRS has not yet lived up to its potential. And the biggest indicator of that has been the relative lack of deployment of private wireless networks, whether they're using 4G or 5G technology, in commercial settings. We see lots of private wireless networks in public venues, you know, things like football stadiums and basketball arenas and such. But the number of private venues that have really embraced private wireless and taken it to the next level to really transform their operations and their employee and customer experiences is still pretty limited and it's still early days. So in that sense, I would say the jury is out on CBRS. And of course, other countries have been watching the United States quite closely to see if this sort of grand experiment that we've put forward with a large amount of spectrum, you know, 150 megahertz of spectrum in the CBRS band, whether that really plays out in the way that it was intended. And now we're starting to see regulators look beyond CBRS to other spectrum bands. There are matters before the FCC today looking at several other bands uh, that may have CBRS-like type of sharing paradigms uh, implemented for them. But a lot of the progress for those is dependent upon the adoption of CBRS and the adoption of private wireless networks that utilize it. Mm. So CBRS aside, do you see any other opportunities or future spectrum demands and auctions in our future? Well, I'll say the U.S. spectrum pipeline right now is probably about as thin as it's been in quite a while. You know, oftentimes the FCC has three or four bands queued up actively to be readied for auction. We don't really see any significant spectrum auctions on the horizon at the moment. And one would argue that this is a pretty rational moment to take a pause. We're effectively in between generations, right? 5G in the United States has been rolled out over the last two or three years. We're probably still another five or six years before we really start getting uh, inundated with messaging around 6G, although some of it is starting to trickle out already. And so the pull for spectrum right now is more limited. Add to that that growth in the U.S. wireless industry has been placing significant financial pressures on all of the wireless operators, you know, particularly our three large national operators. And it's a good time for them not to be having to think about spending 10, 20, 30 billion dollars at a spectrum auction during a time when they're really focused on economizing and focused on managing the profitability of their businesses, as well as wrapping up the deployment of 5G and in some cases, turning their attention more towards expansion of their fiber now. So not a lot ahead for us when it comes to spectrum mm -hmm. auctions, but there are definitely several bands that are being debated right now. Hmm. So one big challenge for companies, really all companies, has been supply chain issues. So what is the role of China in the telecom supply chain? And where are telecom companies at risk here? 
Yeah, this is a hot topic right now, for sure. And, you know, while supply chain became the center of attention over the past three years, as we dealt with, you know, pandemic related shortages and shifts in supply chain, I'd say that, you know, recent actions from the war in Ukraine to some of our tariff challenges, and even some of our regulatory actions that have been taken by the United States and multiple other nations, all have put supply chain back in the forefront of the attention within the tech and telecom world. So we see a couple of things happening right now. The first one is there is obviously a great deal of focus on protecting American and even one would argue Western interests in supply chain, particularly when it comes to technology and even more specifically around semiconductor content. We've seen lots of shortages of semiconductors over the past few years which raise the consciousness about where the chips that make virtually everything work these days, from your car to your computer, uh, those chips are critical for everything that we're doing. And so we're really becoming conscious of where do they come from? Even if they're designed in the US or Canada or Germany or the UK, oftentimes they're being manufactured in China or Taiwan, or other nations, you know, with lower cost labor resources. And that's exposing a lot of the weaknesses in the global supply chain when we do have shortages. So what we see happening is what we think of as a multipolar world. We see this multipolar world emerging where essentially groups of nations are banding together to create systems of supply that might be shared. And you know, most importantly, you certainly see countries like Russia, China, and some of their allies starting to band together. And then you start to see the United States, much of Western Europe, and certain other countries banding together as well. That's causing some reorientation. And if you look recently at the CHIPS Act, for example, that was passed in the United States, it throws a bunch of money at continuing to develop more independent supply chains for semiconductor content, for chips. And so we see this evolving. And I guess most importantly, and lastly, what we're seeing is our clients that we work with, whether they're service providers or whether they're manufacturers, are really starting to take a hard and detailed look at their supply chains for to gain a better understanding, a deeper understanding of where they actually live. Meaning not just their primary supplier and where is their headquarters office, but where are that suppliers? Where are the manufacturing facilities? Where are they sourcing components and even materials from? You know, a great example of this is when war broke out in Ukraine. I think before that, no one in the world really thought about the fact that more than 80% of the world's supply of helium, a critical element used in semiconductor manufacturing, was coming from Ukraine. That became immediately a critical link in the global supply chain that was suddenly broken. And so there's an opportunity for companies to really understand this and to start to develop contingencies and supplier plans that acknowledge some of the restraints and constraints that they may have to deal with in the future. You know, another resource that is in very short supply is our workforce people. 
And you said it earlier. I mean, we're really struggling, especially in this industry, to find, you know, skilled labor, even unskilled labor. But I'd like to know, Dan, where do you see, you know, certain workforce trends or really opportunities that we can say, okay, here's a potential solution, or let's take advantage of this and, you know, really help us to expand our, you know, our workforce in this way. We need solutions and we're just struggling to find them here. Yeah, this is a huge concern you know, from an economic development standpoint, from a societal standpoint, you know, and from just an economic standpoint. You know, here at PwC, we tend to think about this whole notion of workforce development in terms of upskilling. And the recent releases, some of the artificial intelligence tools, generative AI, has really cast a, a big light on this. And of course, you're hearing people talk yet again about how will this impact jobs? How will this impact workforce? And our perspective is that it's actually an opportunity to upskill people and prepare and arm them for the next generation of work, which is going to require people to understand how to interact with and use and develop automation, how to use digital tools to help them do their jobs better and more efficiently. And that generative AI and other things coming out, like low-code automation, are not actually threats to the workforce, but they're actually opportunities for better jobs that are out there. I think you could say the same thing about some of the infrastructure deployment opportunities that we spoke of earlier. When you think about the growth of private wireless, or you think about expansion of fiber optic networks, those require increasingly high-skilled jobs for everything from tower climbing and safety jobs to uh, fiber splicing, which is definitely a high-skilled role. And those are roles that require training and employee development and upskilling, you know, just as much as teaching someone who's an accountant to utilize you know, automation and bots to help accelerate closing the books. So those are great opportunities. And you know, our view is that companies should be embracing those. There's wonderful tools and programs out there to do that. And it's also opportunities for us to take certain segments of the population and utilize them for these type of roles. One of my favorite examples from the telecom industry is a few years ago, some friends of mine actually started an organization to take people who were leaving jobs in the U.S. military, some of our bravest and hardest working people out there in society, and to upskill them to become tower climbers in the cellular industry. These are people who were already used to dangerous jobs, to following procedures, to being accountable for safety. And they're perhaps some of the greatest resources working in that space today. So it was a great opportunity to upskill them and prepare them for careers in the industry. Yes, I think upskilling, training, development, everything you just said, that is a big solution to the challenge we're facing. Let me ask you something, though, the smaller companies, you know, that we deal with small, medium and large companies and staffing every day. And some of the smaller companies, they don't necessarily have the resources to train and, you know, to develop. And, you know, they're really struggling with that piece. So, you know, when consulting with companies, you know, how do you suggest that they go about that when they have all this work and all these projects and they're, you know, pushing to complete and they, they don't have enough time or people, but now they have to think about training and developing as well? Yeah. 
Well, I think there's several levers for that. One of them is you don't have to go it alone. So you can absolutely band together with other companies in your industry, with industry associations, with cooperatives in some cases that have resources effectively to, to collectively support the upskilling of workforce. And I think those are great opportunities and great ways uh, not have to make the investment on your own, but to be able to do it as a group. The other thing is, you know, just look back to technology as well. For example, within PwC, we've developed an application that we license to people that has thousands of you know, online, on-demand training assets available. So if you want your staff to be able to learn about, hey, how do I use bots to go and automate processes within my company? And that could be operational, that could be financial, it could be uh, you know, human resources. Those things are really much more accessible now through online self-guided teaching than they ever have been. So the barriers are actually quite low. And I think really the best thing people can do is experiment. You know, that was well said. And I know so many people are outsourcing their training and development these days. And we do have a lot of folks on the show that have companies in telecom that provide the training and development. So I thought that was spot on. Dan, thank you for coming on the show today. This has just been enlightening. I've really, really enjoyed it. How can we reach you and or your team and learn more about your services? Yeah, Carrie. No, thanks so much for having me. It's, it's really been a pleasure. People can certainly feel free to reach out to me. My email address is Dan, D-A-N dot Hayes, H-A-Y-S, no E in that, at pwc.com. So dan.hayes at pwc.com. You can check us out online at pwc.com as well. And happy to get people connect and to chat about any opportunities or needs that folks have. Fantastic, Dan. Thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. You take care. Thank you for listening to another informative episode of 5G Talent Talk brought to you by RCR Wireless News, Telecom Careers, and Broadstaff Talent Solutions. As we advance into the future, we promise to bring you the resources you need to navigate this ever-changing landscape of 5G to help you attract, retain, and engage people in this new world of work. To access the show notes or leave a review, visit broadstaffglobal.com. Until next time.